the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah? Where's that? The topmost of the poppermost. <laughs> Welcome to Side B of January 1964 here on Topper Most Topper I'm Ed Chan. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Listen back to Side A, where we start off with, oh, a good 20, 30 minutes discussing the rise of I Want to Hold Your Hand on the Crash Box charts, how the Beatles reacted to the fact that they got their first number one mid-month, and... Uh, Everything else you might want to know about how the industry changed in just those four weeks. Yeah, I mean, there were some huge changes on the U.S. charts. And it, when you hear our previous episode, we talked about how the Cashbox editorials didn't quite know what to make of the arrival of the Beatles and weren't sure what kind of impact this was going to have. Um, on uh, American and actually the you know pop music in general, were they going to be a threat? Um, were they going to you know uh, were they going to be like other British acts and and just kind of fade from the charts? But obviously, they eventually decided no, this was the real thing. This was a group that was going to have a major impact on the charts and perhaps music itself. Although they're still asking the question, can these boys be bigger than Frank Ifield? <laughs> oh, that's a toughie. And that's not a joke. No, they really did ask that. Good luck, fams. <laughs> so that was their measuring stick for British success in the States was, oh, yeah, Frank can get to at least the, the middle of the Hot 100 and can consistently do that. It's like, okay, there you go. So we are doing Cashbox this month because Cashbox is always a little bit ahead of Billboard. The British charts are usually ahead of both of the American charts, as you can see from the reception now and then. Now and then was immediately on the British chart, and it took a week to appear on Billboard. It was the same thing in 1964. I Want to Hold Your Hand appeared on Cashbox and would not start its rise on Billboard towards closer to the end of January. So we start with the week of January 4th. At number 71, one of the things we see a lot this month is One Hit Wonders, one of which is this artist named Brooks Odell with a song called Watch Your Step. It's not the Bobby Parker song. It's very much a smooth soul kind of song. Uh, there's a lot to like about this song. But girl, you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna take One of the things that kind of struck me looking at it and listening to it is Marvelous Mrs. Maisel has this composite soul singer from the late 50s, early 60s that they've named Shy Baldwin. And he is almost exactly this artist. <laughs> they said they based it on Harry Belafonte and various other artists, but it's like, you look at the photo, you look at it, it's like, yeah, they could have based it on him. <laughs> That's interesting. I think this is a particularly notable song because it's an early example of Philly Soul because it was co-written, the song Watcher Step, by Kenny Gamble and Tom Bell. And they were among the architects of the Philadelphia soul sound and would be founders of 
the Philly International label. And so this is an example of their early work. And Brooks O'Dell did not have a long career, unfortunately, but this is a very smooth sound and really a nice song. And you can certainly hear the early roots of Philly Soul here. That was certainly the hallmark of what would become that sweet sound and that romantic kind of sound. So not as memorable as the later stuff would become, but these are the beginnings. I can see where Kit's coming from. I just thought that it was an arrangement that kept shifting from one style of soul to another style of soul. To me, I sort of liked the bits where it was almost pushing into Otis Redding territory in those sections as opposed to the other bits. Yes, I agree with you. The emphasis bits. I saw you in the arms of another guy. And I almost wanted to die. Rather than the smooth sound kind of bits. I said you better come on and watch your step. Cause I'm watching you. Yeah, I agree. And it's not as memorable as some of the later Philly Soul would become, but it's just interesting to hear this early example. Not in a negative way, but this is the definition of a one-hit wonder. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately for him, it was. It was his only hit, and he would go into obscurity for whatever reason. But a solid soul song. I will say he might have had a little bit less obscurity if he would pick songs that the title hadn't already been used. So, (laughs) as mentioned, Watch Your Step was better known, certainly to us, for the Bobby Parker version. The B-side was Walk On By, but not that Walk On By. That's right. True enough. Wow. All right. At number 86, Tonight You're Gonna Fall in Love With Me by the Shirelles. This seemed a little bit leader of the packish to me. It's definitely not one of their more notable songs. Their harmonies, as always, were on point. Sherelle's had such a great harmonic style, but to me, it just sounded like kind of a cookie-cutter girl group song. I mean, that's about the best way I can describe it. But what's interesting is the song was co-written by Artie Kornfeld, who went on to be the co-creator and sole promoter of Woodstock. But he also was a very prolific songwriter and wrote the most Cashbox Top 100 singles of any songwriter and became the vice president of Capitol Records in his early 20s. So he was the youngest to hold the position and the first vice president of rock and roll ever. So he had some incredible success in the music industry, but this was not one of his better compositions unfortunately but as i said the shirelles performed it very well Uh, yeah i mean you know like i say uh, you're going into leader of the pack here Mm -hmm. we're taking on the harmonies the the harmony bits are like almost exactly the same as awful leader of the pack exactly my friend I thought the lyrics were workable, but a bit cliched. They do a great job with the vocals. It's the Shirelles. I just thought that it was a bit by the numbers. Exactly. Another round or two through the writing process, the song might have had some potential. Agreed. Unlike this next song, at number 92, Andy Williams with A Fool Never Learns. Fool never learns that I'm gonna do a very foolish thing. I'm gonna stick by you I'm gonna hang around Wait around Hopes you'll love me again someday They say a broken heart Don't mark the end of time But there are lots of girls 
just mine. What? Oh. Boring and the definition of white bread. Yeah. The other side of the record's much better. The A side that Martin's referring to is charade. I hear it still. I always will. Best on the Definitely a stronger <laughs> song. Yeah, this is definitely interesting. At times it sounded a little like a polka to me or something. I mean, it was just corny, did not do Andy any favors. I will quote, and my mother's in the other room here, so she's going to love this. My mother graded it a zero minus. Betty has spoken. Betty has spoken. That is correct. This may be the first of our 1964 terrible songs. I have to agree with Betty. Definitely not a classic Andy Williams song. Things pick up a little bit with the number 93. When You Walk in the Room by Jackie DeShannon. We mentioned her already in the show. Well, side A of this show. I like this song. It's not a great song, but it's a pretty good song. I really like the bass, and there's kind of an interesting guitar riff going on. It's, it's a bit more style than substance, but I will still rate it a hit. Wish I could love the production on it. It's a wall of sound-ish production for sure. And I thought at times it kind of overwhelmed her voice. But it's an interesting song and it's been covered many, many times. I was surprised at how many times. The Searchers, one of our favorite groups here, covered it and had a big hit with it, in fact. Reached number three, the UK in 64. So we're probably going to encounter it in the near future. Status Quo in the UK, they covered many, many others. All right, this is for our lovely girls who've been to so many of our shows. What can I say? Here we go. Let's do it. And then we got it. Ready, babe? Status Quo! Yes, take it! On my face I could feel a glowing sensation Taking place I can hear the guitars playing Lovely tunes Every time that you Walk in the production could have just been pared down a bit, but I think it could have been a stronger song, because I like her voice a lot. I would have liked to have been able to hear the lyrics and hear her delivery a lot better. 
too much reverb swamping it. Yes, exactly. And at number 100, Son of Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy. Why is this Son of Rebel Rouser? It sounds nothing like Rebel Rouser. <laughs> exactly. That's a good point, Ed. Why is the Son of Rebel Rouser? Because it sounds nothing like the original. <laughs> it's a good enough record, but it's not great. I thought Dwayne Eddy was a guitarist. Because there's not that much of it on there. That really yeah. distinctive lead playing that Dwayne is so incredibly well known for, it's not there. Yeah, you're waiting for more of it. You know, he'll come in for a few notes, and then you're you're thinking, yeah, okay, Dwayne Eddy, here we go, and and he's gone. And then you get loads of sax organ. That's fine, but it's just typical blues progression kind of stuff. Again, style over substance. Exactly. And this would be Dwayne Eddy's last appearance on the charts until 1986. Pizza Gun. We move on to the second week of January, January the 11th, at number 70, Talking About My Baby by The Impressions. It's a song that is pretty well known, I think. I like it. It's really smooth. The horns are really great. I love this song, and it has been covered many times, and this is classic Curtis Mayfield songwriting. He's one of the lead singers. You can pick him out right away. It is just epitome of smooth and melodic. Tons of people have covered it, including, I learned the other night, Phil Collins. Even he's covered yep. it. Was that on his uh, 60s album that he did not too yes. long? Yep, going okay. back. Yep. Love the harmonies. The roots of gospel are in this. The call and response, you can hear that. The horns, as you mentioned, Ed, are just fantastic on this. This is just soul perfection for me. I love it. You got me with Curtis Mayfield because the production by him and everything, the arrangement is just soulful goodness. Yep, he was just a genius. And from Chicago, I got to get a Chicago reference in here. Talk about my baby yeah, yeah. with her pretty smile. Yeah, yeah. She's about to drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Makes my oh, heart beat wild. So everybody say yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody say yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody say yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about my baby yeah, yeah. She doesn't walk real nice yeah, yeah. There's no questions about the maybe For her I'd make any sacrifice So everybody say yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me hear you say yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Before you say
All right, at number 79, His Kiss by Betty Harris. It's not a great song, but it's a pretty good one. It's, it is a, more or less just a straight gospel song. They call her the lost queen of New Orleans soul, mostly because later on she would do a lot of work with Alan Toussaint. Yes, absolutely. And she's known in the northern soul field. Was not a huge hit, although she did have a hit in the R&B and Hot 100 charts with Cry to Me, which was a cover of Salman Burke's song, which we've talked about. And it's definitely not super memorable song, but her performance certainly elevates it. Her voice is straight out of the church, and she was really a, a great vocalist. Wonderful yearning vocal performance by Betty, but it's a song that doesn't match her vocal. It makes sense that it's straight out of the church. Both of her parents were reverends, and she comments that my dad was also a promoter. He booked gospel artists, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirs, Rosetta Tharp, the Dixie Hummingbirds, the Caravans, they would come around every year almost and do shows. I watched them as a kid and finally made up my mind, that's what I wanted to do. So she comes by it honestly. And she learned from the best. So <laughs> there you go. And just below that at number 80, there you go. Here's I Want to Hold Your Hand, cracking the American charts for the very first time. The Big Bang. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it is. Very quickly. At number 88, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells doing their version of You'll Never Walk Alone. I prefer the Jerry version. But boy, talk about the church. Patti's voice on this is big. Damn. Yes. She just has an unbelievable voice and she lets it rip on this version. If you want to hear You'll Never Walk Alone done in a gospel style, this is for you. For sure. Number 100, The Return of Skeeter Davis with He Says the Same Things to Me. Uh, it's a slightly better use of Skeeter's talents, but again, it defaults to what they've kind of been throwing at her. And shall I tell you? Generic brand Leslie Gore. She started so strong with The End of the World. That was a great song. And she sang it so beautifully. And then they must have decided, okay, you know, we really want her to cross over. End of the World was such a great crossover hit. So they gave her material like this, poppy. Not that The End of the World didn't have pop appeal, but this is just straight up pop. And this was cookie cutter, as I've talked about. 
kind of pop. I mean, she was better than this. Leslie Gore was able to come up with some good stuff. This is just... It's the off-brand. It's the Costco brand, uh, Leslie Gore. Exactly. I mean, now this one does have a bit of a country feel to it as opposed to the other song we've talked about. Yeah, it's not straight pop. It at least veers into territory she should be singing. But Exactly. But the whoa, whoa, whoa's, and that's pop. And this is no the end of the world. It's just very bland. And she deserved better. I thought it was a bit of a throwaway. But then again, like you said, I'm comparing it to end of the world and things like that. We move on to the third week, January 18th. As mentioned, I Want to Hold Your Hand jumps all the way up from the 80s to number 43 this week. Yep, it's climbing fast. Brian Epstein received the telegram on the 17th, so they already knew what the next week's charts were going to look like while this one was coming out. Interesting. That's kind of interesting. At number 80, going to send you back to Georgia by Timmy Shaw, another one-hit wonder. Exactly, but a special one because this was in John Lennon's jukebox. He really liked this song. And I like it too. And I can see why John liked it. It has kind of a raw R&B sound to it. Really like the guitar solo. You know, it's just kind of straightforward rock. And it was, as you said, a one-hit wonder. And the song, interestingly enough, was originally titled A City Slick. It has been covered by the animals and a few others, not a lot, but it also reminded me a little bit of Leave My Kitten Alone. Yeah, I can see that. Can definitely see how John would have been drawn to this song. I liked it. Just some good old-fashioned rock with a a shot of rhythm and blues. (laughs) I think it's a decent (laughs) rock and roll song. I really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. I did too. Although I think I like the Animals version better. Uh, The Animals changed the name of the city. It became going to take you back to Walker. Walker, Newcastle on Tyne was where Eric Burden came from. Yes. In just a few moments, we'll be going over to the rehearsal room, and if the teenagers are all settled, let's go over and see and hear more of The Animals. We agree. We'll give it a hit. It's not the greatest song, but it's a good solid rock and roll song. Yeah. At number 82, Who Cares by Fats Domino. Oh, who cares? Yes, who cares for me? I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave this town. I'm going to Fat sings it well, but where's the piano? Yes, that's true. It's Fat's Domino. It's his real sound, his trademark sound. Now, it was written by Don Gibson, country musician, singer-songwriter, and 
it fits him because Fats kind of puts on the poor pitiful me persona and you're kind of rooting for him and I love his voice again it's Fats I like how it you know starts fading out toward the end because he's saying I'm leaving town and suggests he's really leaving and you know, a bit of studio trickery yeah it's kind of cool I mean a little gimmicky when you listen to Fats you have a smile on your face and this is another one is it his best no I mean, it, it no. could have been a little bit more up tempo, though. Yeah, I mean, maybe. It, it's a little bit draggy, I think. It is slower for him. That's true. So maybe he could pick up the tempo and put in a little more piano. Definitely not one of his best, but it's fun. I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm not saying it's a bad song. No. It's, it's at least borderline for me between hit and miss. But if they'd gotten rid of that sax and replaced it with piano, it yep. would be definitely yeah. on the hit side. Yeah, As I'll is, give you that. It's okay. To use a pun, I put up, I didn't care for the occasional over-the-top backing vocals either. True. All right, at number 84, Tommy Rowe with Come On. Come On, not the Chuck Berry Come On, not the Stones Come On. Come on, come on, chill and let's shout until the break of day. If you put Hearted and you're burdened down with sorrow Cause the world ain't treating you right Well listen to me brother If you sing to one another You'll go home feeling better tonight yeah. <sighs> Mediocre song Yeah, I didn't care for it either I think um, the Stones song's better Yes Yeah, and we don't like the Stones song I don't all like that, that one much either <laughs> So, yeah, a bit more folky Miss Yeah, it just doesn't go anywhere all right, at number 87, a song you know, because everybody knows this. This is one of those that is just imprinted upon you at birth. California Sun by the Rivieras. Well, here the days are short and the nights are long. Where they walk and I walk, they twist and I twist, they shimmy. This is a lot of fun. I was saying before we started recording, this is another song that I used to hear at my first job at the jewelry store, but this does not trigger PTSD. This is so much fun. It absolutely exudes the summer sound and just makes you smile when you hear this. It's just the epitome of a one-hit wonder, but it's a great one. Yeah, the other trend we're seeing, and this is definitely part of it, is that darn roller rink organ. By the time we got to the end of January here, it's like, oh, I'm glad we don't have to hear that for much longer. But here it's used to great effect. Agreed. Absolutely. But we just hear far too much of it. It became a gimmick that everyone wanted to jump on. Yep. And that guitar riff is so infectious of that. It's a surf song. I mean, it has the surf sound to it, I should say. Of course, it isn't really a surf song. It has just the surf sound to it. Just a great slice of pop. I've always enjoyed it. I absolutely love this song. I'm the one who went down the rabbit hole on this one. The guitar that you're on about, that's basically doing an approximation of the horn arrangement on the original 1961 soul song by joe jones which was released on roulette records a record label that was owned by morris levy levy or levy morris levy (laughs) who craftily added his name as a co-writer on the song even though it was solely written by henry glover morris levy everybody would probably know from the john lennon court case and he is the model for the Rock and Roll Gangster in The Sopranos. Oh, I didn't know that. This is the breakdown of Hash Rabkin. Hash is a loan shark for the family, and it's discovered that most of his fortunes actually came from his time in the recording industry during the 1950s and 1960s. 
It was during this time that the music industry was thriving off of soul music. As Hesh founded F-Note Records, a record label bringing young African-American artists to fame, as he had his name attached as a co-writer on a large amount of these songs. We see this notion come to light during the 10th episode of the first season, titled A Hit is a Hit, when Massive Genius is seeking royalties from Hesh for little Jimmy Willis's mother, who claims Hesh stole over $400,000 as a result of the success of Willis's time as a singer-songwriter. They modeled a character on Morris Levy, yes, but we know him better for the rock and roll lawsuit. The songwriter, Henry Glover, he was really important because he became one of the first executives in a predominantly white record company working for King Records, being employed by them from 1947, and he would go on over the years to be employed by other record companies, and he would work with acts such as James Brown, Ray Charles, Sarah Vaughan, and the band, among many others. Wow. And a shout-out to Jay Bergen and his book on the rock and roll lawsuit. If you are interested in what exactly went on, he describes Morris Levy in some detail. Yes, great book. And lots of direct quotes from John from the court transcripts. It's amazing stuff that you have never read before until you get this book. For sure. Yeah, do check it out. Jay Bergen. Jay has just released a new book, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, The Untold Story. At number 92, Who Do You Love by the Sapphires. Another solid soul record, although I'm not quite sure what I think of the arrangement. It's ever so slightly old-fashioned. Yep, this is another piece of early what would become Philly soul. Kenny Gamble wrote this. It was also on the Swan label, which of course has a Beatles connection. I like this song. You mentioned you think it's a little old-fashioned. It is, but that's kind of what I like about it. You know, it is a bit of throwback soul. Maybe that's what attracts me to it, that it does have kind of an old school sound. And again, there are elements in this of what would become some of the vocal harmonies of something like a song that's having a little bit of a comeback this year because it's being used in ads, something like Best of My Love by The Emotions and things like that. It's just a great soul record. I just really love the harmonies on this. Yeah, I love the vocals on this and I like the lyrics as well. I really enjoyed listening to this. Yep, really lingers afterwards. I mean, you know, we've talked about some songs in recent shows where we're like, ah, these aren't very memorable. Now, this one does stick with you. And Huff and Gamble would be behind a bunch of tracks, which we know a whole lot better. Freddie Scott's You Got What I Need, Billy Paul's Me and Mrs. Jones, and the OJ's For the Love of Money. Yes, some of my all-time favorites. All right, we move on to number 95, which is a really interesting song that girl belongs to yesterday by gene pitney the fellows who wrote this song or at least wrote the lyrics to this song gene pitney would change up the melody a bit to mick jagger and keith richards how about that my publicist was andrew lou golden who was their manager yeah and we ended up doing uh, quite a bit of television. And we didn't do a tour, but we did television and hung out together and things like right. that, you know, in, right. in the early days. Well, you were on. I mean, you are mentioned, and I think the song on their first album is for Phil and Gene. Oh, yeah. I played on, on the, the session. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a strange one. I, I, was, I was flying home, and I stopped for one day in London. I was flying from Paris. And uh, Andrew called me, and he said, you got to help me. He said, the guys have to have a new single out. And not only won't they sing together... They hate each other. They won't even talk to each other. The Stones? Yeah, in the session. <laughs> so I'll never forget what I did. Actually, I think that they've refuted that this happened. But I, okay. I, I've seen pictures even with a glass in their hand. And I, I remember well, we had five-fifths of cognac that we were bringing home, duty-free cognac. Right. And I bought a bottle of cognac with me, and we told them that it was my birthday, and it was an old family tradition that everybody had to have a water glass of cognac. Okay. 
and then it broke the ice. And we did the session, and I played on uh, Not Fade Away, yeah. which they needed a B-side for, uh, sorry, not, not a Not Fade Away, on uh, Little by Little. They didn't even have a B-side, so all we played was blues chords. That's what it is, yeah. To make it's up an instrumental, the second. It? Yeah, it wasn't even instrumental. It was no melody. <laughs> and I love it because they give uh, Phil Spector, who showed up in the big roles uh, for the session, yeah. they give him credit for playing uh, maracas, as the um, okay. the instrument, he's actually playing an empty cognac bottle <laughs> with a fifty cent American piece. That was his percussive instrument. This is better than the stuff I read. Okay, oh, yeah, the rock history is just yeah, don't believe do, any of that. But they did write a song for you, and you then did record it. No, I'm sorry, no, but no, we have to. They didn't write it for me. Oh, didn't they? Okay. They actually had recorded it with a guy they named George. They sold it well Bean. in those days. Then okay, all right. And they didn't like the way that it came out. Okay. And when I heard it, I thought, great track. Wonderful recording. It was done at the Olympia Studios in, in London. So I said to him, can I take it and rewrite the melody so it fits the kind of song that I'm doing now? And then I'll go in and do it. And if it comes out good, then we'll release it. Yeah. It did, and it was the first uh, Jagger Richards song in the U.S. charts. That girl belongs to yesterday. Yeah. You know, Mick and Keith were just starting to write their own material for the Stones. It's fascinating to hear this. I don't know about you guys, but if I heard this, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah. You know, I can tell that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote this. Oh, it is very definitely a Gene Pitney style song. It yep. is bigger than big. But now there's nothing left to say. She only wanted me for play. The title, the phrase, you know, that girl belongs to yesterday. Maybe that's a bit Stones-ish, that phrase. But other than that, very different. I mean, it's really interesting. And the production is nothing like a Stones production, for sure. I mean, it's almost like a little bit of a Phil Spector. Although the Stones did do, a, I don't know if it was a demo or what, but they did record a version of this in 63, which was not released until much, much later. Right. But it is known now. It's the first top 100 single with a Jagger Richard songwriting credit. The song is okay. I wasn't insane about it, but it certainly has historical significance. Well, it is your typical Gene Pitney song. Like you say, he changed up the melody a little bit. I kind of like the original Stones melody better. Yep, I agree. But now there's nothing left to say. She only wanted me to play. Neither version is particularly memorable. It's Jagger and Richard's version of I Lost My Little Girl. It's their version of that, isn't in, in it? In a way, yeah. So it's their first song. So They're not going to write, you know, 100% gold first off, are they? That's true. For the first effort, not bad. At number 98, Little Boxes by Pete Seeger. This has been known more recently because it was the theme song to the Showtime show Weeds, Mary Louise Parker. Oh, I've never seen that show. I mean, I've certainly known of it, but I've never actually watched an episode, so I didn't know that. It's a tiny bit of an anti-capitalist anthem. Pete Seeger didn't write this. It was another songwriter, a folk singer, Malvina Reynolds, and she was really parroting the development of suburbia and conformist middle class attitudes. And so the she was talking about suburban tract houses, little boxes of different colors all made of ticky-tacky. And by the way, that phrase ticky-tacky then became a slang term that I think caught on in the 60s. And I think I've heard people use the term even today, not a lot. And so the little boxes referred to that, but I think it means different things. But suburbia was the main satirical subject. Little boxes all the same 
There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university where they all were put in boxes, little boxes, all the same. And there's doctors and there's lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. It's a short song. It's only about 90 seconds, but yep. it does wear out its welcome by the end of it, I think. It's a little heavy handed. You're kind of like, I get it. There's that, and then there's just the repeating nursery rhyme music behind it. Oh, is this a children's song? I think it was sort of meant to sound like that. That may have been the intent when it was written to use that kind of motif. It's repetitive in a way that I sort of got a bit irritated by it, and I can't believe that I'm saying that. By the end of it, it's like, it's not only, okay, I get it, it's like, I don't want to hear that riff ever again. (laughs) Yeah. You do eventually, but it's like, no, after this 90 seconds, I'm done. I get the message, and maybe if if it hadn't been that nursery rhyme kind of format, if they had done it a little more artfully, maybe it would have worked better. But they've had contrasting sections. Yeah. I don't know, but it may have also been using the kind of hootenanny format where it's sing-along. I don't know. I like Tom Lehrer's description, though. This is quite possibly the most sanctimonious song ever written. (laughs) I don't agree with it, but I like the sentiment. Yeah, (laughs) true. (laughs) All right, at number 99, Puppy Love by Barbara Lewis. No, this is not the Paul Anka, Donnie Osmond song. I guess that counts as our third trend for this week. Songs whose titles have already been used. Yeah, really. That is sort of a trend. It was written by Barbara herself. Didn't care for it. Pretty forgettable pop song. Uh, The B-side of Snap Your Fingers, which we have previously discussed, it's Mm -hmm. just a fairly standard pop tune. Yeah, exactly. Snap Your Fingers is way better. It's a B-side that you don't turn over to. That's right. (laughs) Oh, savage. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we move on to the last week of January 1964. January the 26th, and as promised, jumping all the way up to the top of the charts, there's I Want to Hold Your Hand. Wow. How quick was that? Nothing the first week. 80s, 40s, number one. That's pretty impressive. So, in the end, we come back to the beginning. And the most important part of this whole phenomenon, the Mersey sound. And as we said, the Beatles sing it best. As in this record, their biggest American hit at the moment. Even the little engine that could swan... Managed to get She Loves You up there to number 51. Wow. Beatlemania was fully in effect. Here we go. Some people still didn't get it. Sullivan got it, but Jack Parr was just trashing them. Oh, yeah. Well, while they're here rising the charts, Parr's like, look at the silly thing these kids like. Oh, yeah. He was absolutely putting them down. Was that the appearance where he was pointing at the footage of the screaming girls on saying, they're going to vote one day? And actually, the music is rock and roll. Now, we've never, in my seven years at NBC, ever on a Tonight Show on this show, ever had a rock and roll act. I understand science is working on a cure for this. Does it bother you to realize that in a few years, these girls will vote, raise children, and drive cars? Nice to know that England has finally risen to our cultural level. Ed Sullivan's going to have the Beatles on live. Uh, in February, and we only, our interest was just showing a more adult audience that usually follows my work, uh, what's going on in England. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Cashbox says it's promotion, and of course, any appearance was a good appearance, but Parr was just being, well, the elitist that he could be. Yes, for sure. All right, at number 89, Vaya con Dios by The Drifters. It's a cover of the Les Paul and Mary Ford Hit from 1953. Now the 
hacienda is so dark, time is sleeping. Now the time has come to part, the time for weeping. I did not care for this version, and I love the Drifters. Just a mismatch. I mean, I don't know why they covered this. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't their idea. And I just thought it was kind of a sloppy cover. The instrumentation, I just did not care for it. Messy. It, it just sounded like everybody was drunk when they were recording this. Oh, there's where John Lennon got the idea for the rock and roll sessions, huh? Exactly. <laughs> I like the the little tinge of soul that they've applied to it, but yeah, yeah, the the whole thing just never really gels. No. All right, at number 91, coming on by Bill Black's combo, this is more of that roller rink organ kind of thing. You almost expect there to be an introduction at the beginning, couples free skate. (laughs) (laughs) Heavy sax, it's a nice enough tune. It's a bit of a toe tapper, but it's also, even at this point in 1964, it's a bit passe. Yeah, I mean, it's just a standard blues progression. You know, it's fine, it's pleasant, but nothing that extraordinary. Number 94, there's more James Brown. Oh, baby, don't you weep. Part one, this was another one of those part one, part two singles. James Brown is in the house. Yeah. It's a rewrite of the gospel tune, Mary Don't You Weep. There's Aretha Franklin. All the men got drowned in the sea one day. Yes, they did. Mary, oh, Mary Don't You Weep. Mary Don't Weep. It's got that good James Brown energy, but this is maybe a slightly lesser song, I think. Yeah, this is not one of his best. Very interesting, though. It sounds like a live recording. It isn't. The crowds were dubbed in. But it was included on an otherwise authentic live album called Pure Dynamite Live at the Royal. This was a last-minute addition to the album, and they just put in the crowd effects to make it sound live. Later on, there was a version without the effects. I want to hear that because I don't like the effects. They get in the way. They're clearly fake. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, too, because the theme suddenly changes during the song. He's first talking about comforting a woman devastated by lost love. And then he suddenly changes midway through and sings of famous entertainers that he's met. i got a lot of friends in my business and then name checks like Jackie Wilson and Wilson Pickett and Sam Cooke. So he suddenly changes midway through. It's interesting. And another thing that's interesting is this was a hit. I mean, not a huge hit, but it's rarely been heard on the radio or reissued since its original release. So it's kind of a somewhat rare single. It's fun. Come on, it's James Brown. But it's not a song I would have on repeat. Yeah, the change may well be because he just didn't know what to do once the spiritual ended. I'm doing a gospel song. I'm doing a gospel song. 
okay, am I just going to repeat the verse again or no, I'll go over here. Yeah. And notably, this was to be the last song that James Brown would release with the famous Flames, other than the uh, 1964 re-release of Please, Please, Please and the 1966 B-side release of the Live at the Apollo performance of I Go Crazy. All right, at number 97, Long Gone Lonesome Blues by Hank Williams Jr. This was the first time that Hank Williams Jr. would hit the country charts. Yep, and cross over to the main charts, and this is a cover of his dad's song. I went down to the river to watch the fish swim by. But when I got to the river, so lonesome I wanted to die. Oh, Lord. So then I jumped in the river, but the doggone river was dry. She's long gone and now I'm lonesome blue I had me a woman who couldn't be true She made me for my money and she made me blue I don't like it as well as the original song, but... He does match his dad's yodel pretty well. Yes. A bit more Frank Ifield-esque <laughs> sounds yeah. for us. Yeah, exactly. But I like the original version better, mainly because this version adds strings. I don't like the strings. I'm going to find me a river, one that's cold as ice. And when I find me that river, Lord, I'm going to pay the I like the pared down Hank Williams Sr. version better. It's just straightforward. I wonder if they added the strings to this because they wanted to match the Nashville sound that was so popular at the time. But Hank Williams Jr. does a great job of singing it, though. As I said, that's impressive that he could match his dad's yodeling like that. Well, and the original was only 13 years old at this point. Yeah, but of course, Hank Williams Jr. went on to have a very successful career. Hank Williams Jr. would cover Norwegian Wood, which isn't a song you think Hank Williams Jr. would cover. Yeah, that's interesting. And then as far as Sr., well, John does a little bit of Hey Good Looking in the Get Back sessions. Yeah. They were at least knowledgeable, and we know that they were, to a certain extent, fans, although I haven't seen that much of Jr. passing anybody's path. I, I would have thought he and Ringo would have pa- crossed paths at some point. Yeah, I don't think I know any evidence of it. Martin? I prefer the dad's version, and I thought, yeah, the orchestration didn't really work. I like the more laid-back version of his dad's. And then this song, whether it is the senior or junior version, would go on to inspire Bruce Springsteen to write The River. That is also pretty cool. Yeah. All right. We close out the Cashbox charts with Little Boy by The Crystals, another Spectre, Greenwich, and Jack Berry song arranged by our friend Spex Nishi. He's back. (laughs) I'm gonna make you mine. but not great it's a little bit formulaic i think yeah it sounds like they were trying to emulate and then he kissed me a bit i thought the wall of sound production overwhelmed their voices it's fine it's just not one of the crystal's strongest songs it's a little formulaic girl group and again the crystals have done so much better I couldn't get past the over-the-top wall of sound. I couldn't really work out what was going on in the song. It was just destroying what there was of the song, really. They they put too much in there. Agree, 100%. And the B-side would also briefly chart. That song was entitled, I Wonder. Cashbox's review at the time said that the overwhelming Phil Spector instrumental sound is much in evidence as the gals they just love to use these diminutives, don't they? Yeah. Devote this one to their crush. Okay. All right. <laughs> Whatever. 
just to bring up a couple of songs from the Billboard side of things. On January the 18th was when I Want to Hold Your Hand would be at number 45. It's a bit behind Cashbox, as we said. Yeah. At number 92 on the week of January 18th was a song called Saginaw, Michigan by Lefty Frizzell. I don't think we've spoken of Lefty. That name comes up in reference to the Traveling Wilburys. The second album, Traveling Wilburys, Wilburys Volume 3. Yeah. When it arrived, it was dedicated to Roy Orbison as Lefty Wilbury, which was the pseudonym that he used in the first album in honor of his hero, Lefty Frizzell. Lefty Frizzell was a very influential country artist. And yeah, I was kind of surprised we hadn't talked about him before. And then the week of January 25th, She Loves You also makes its Billboard debut at number 69. So things are moving. It's not quite taking over the charts. I think this chart is kind of a transition chart. The British charts, they still have a handful of the old style songs but it is i would say predominantly a british invasion chart at this point the january 64 chart in the uk yep but you look at the cash box and the billboard like i say is even behind where the cash box charts are you start to see some things creeping in the one that surprises me the most is the jagger richards song you had an artist who had enough pull to get it in the charts but it's like oh wow that's kind of interesting to see. Yeah, that they were moving in fairly early into songwriting and writing for other artists. Obviously, taking a huge cue from John and Paul, hey, there's money to be made writing for other artists. And then, of course, they would start writing more of their own material for the Stones. Yeah, it's interesting that Lou Goldham was playing the Epstein line. Brian clearly had proven to everybody that, oh, writing songs is the way to go. And I mean, of course, Paul had noted that as far back as the Mersey Beat special, where he says, oh, what what I think we're going to do is John and I will go off and become songwriters for other people. Right. All right. Any last thoughts? Next month, Ed Sullivan and things just explode from here. The British invasion takes over the American charts starting next month. I think it'll be interesting to see how things change, how other British invasion artists are going to start making their mark into the charts and how it's going to affect artists such as Frank Ifield and some of our other buddies, Tony Bennett and some artists you know, because eventually they're going to be appearing less and less on the charts. So it's going to be interesting to witness how some artists are going to start making fewer and fewer appearances on the chart and also to see how Soul and R&B are going to be affected because we talked about that quite a bit uh, in this episode. So, And I ultimately think it will be affected some, Mm -hmm. but you know, I think that's one of the things that we're going to see that a lot of those songs are still there. And we know that throughout 64 and 65, while it doesn't compete with the Beatles, they do have their own lane as it were. Motown in particular, but not just Stax is there Mm -hmm. uh, and Atlantic is there. Mm Mm-hmm. The African-American artists are still making their inroads. That's right. Not that we've seen it in this episode, but I'm looking forward to seeing how the creative artists in America start to get inspired by the Beatles and the British invasion themselves and how the music of American artists changes accordingly as well in the back and forth between the British invasion and the American artists. We've mentioned several times how Brian Wilson would hear this music. He would hear, I want to hold your hand, and that would kind of totally change his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, Martin, we did Canada last month, and now we have sort of did a deeper dive into the Beatles in the States for the first time. I know you probably heard some of that, but what are your reflections on that as someone who wasn't affected by it nearly so immediately. I found it interesting. I mean, especially when we were talking with Piers about Canada and how the music was going into Canada and then how it trickled into America, probably through Washington, he was saying, and things like that. I found that fascinating. But this episode, where we've done the cash box and shown the difference between that and Billboard, I found it interesting with how they were different to each other in incredible ways. 
because I mean that's why I first picked up on the the Riviera's the Riviera's song or whatever was because it hit the Cashbox chart a week before it hit the Billboard chart, but it's been reported over the years that it hit the charts that day, but it, that always puts it as being the Billboard chart, not the Cashbox chart. So it's interesting to see how different charts accordingly, you know, are different to each other. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people just kind of assume that that uh, January 17th telegram from Capital was about Billboard, but it wasn't. It was about Cashbox. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we will be back soon with February of 1964. Look for Kit at the Fest for Beatles fans this year on the 60th anniversary at the TWA in New York City. Yes, indeed. I'll be there with balls on. And we will be back soon. See you soon. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.